Hey, beautiful people, we are live. Well, hello everybody to this amazing Tuesday. Oh, sorry, Monday. I'm so pumped tonight. I got a good friend of ours and also a content writer for We Are Warriors with us today. His name is Brad Swarovski. Uh Brad, please let us just let us know a little bit about yourself today. Oh, uh, like well, like you said, my name's Brad, and uh, I'm currently working as an outreach addictions counselor. I uh, am a cancer survivor. I struggled with addictions for 22 years. And uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm an advocate for mental health and addictions. I, I, when I cleaned myself up, I really just wanted to get the opportunity to, there were so many great people that encouraged me and helped me out through my struggles with addictions yeah. that I really just wanted to, to have the opportunity to do the same thing. So um, over the, over the last six years or eight years, I guess I've been kind of studying as much as I can and, and learning as much as I can about mental health and substance use disorders and uh went to school and now i'm working as a outreach addictions counselor and it's kind of everything's kind of did a complete come full circle i guess so yeah. i'm really pumped to be on the show awesome yeah i'm so excited man like everybody that's listening right now uh stick around brad's gonna tell his story today and it's really is one of those power empowering stories to hear a guy that's really been in rock bottom that brought himself out of it and he's doing amazing things to help other people so thank you, Brad. So cool to have you on today. Uh, but before we get into the serious stuff, uh, I want to get to know Brad on a more personal level, right? Because we're going to get into like the dirty addiction and all that kind of stuff. So let's have a little bit of fun. So here is the icebreaker. Okay, Mr. Swarovski, are you ready for your first question? I guess I'm as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> Let's do this. All right. What's the most embarrassing moment from your teen years? And you got to be honest here because I know you have family members watching this right now. <laughs> so, I think uh, from my teen years, I'm glad you didn't ask from 20 and up because there was too many to mention. Oh, but my teen years, I think probably the most embarrassing thing that I can remember is I actually had a real bad blunder in a public speaking uh, platform. I was doing an oratory type situation. They used to have these competitions when you were when we were younger, where you went and did public speaking, yeah, and yeah. I screwed up really, really bad and ran off the stage, and then came back up and tried again and screwed up again and took off, <laughs> and it was like 
for me, it was like super traumatizing. I honestly didn't do any kind of public speaking until I took a Toastmasters course to try and get myself back able to public speak because I had such bad anxiety around it. And then when I went through my recovery program, they encouraged us telling our stories and I started doing public speaking and I just got back into it and I've been doing a lot of it ever since. But that's that one plays pretty clear in my memory, to be honest. Uh, was it as bad as you thought it was? Because I know for myself, like I'll do a public speaking event and I'll think I just kiboshed it. Like I just messed this thing up completely. And then you ask somebody else and they're like, no, I didn't even notice. Or you know, I think. I think I probably remembered it more than anyone else. <laughs> yeah. Probably if you asked all the, not probably not many of the people except for maybe my mother who were at the, the event would even remember it. But I certainly carried that with me for a long time. Oh man, that's, that's embarrassing. Hey guys, uh, if you're on here, please let us know where you're coming from, where you're watching from. We want to see if there's a dynamic crowd tonight. We love having you on. So thank you so much for joining us today. And please, this is interactive. So if there's a question and you want to put your most embarrassing moment in, go ahead, put it in the comments. We'll put it on the screen and show everybody. I don't care. That'll be yeah, awesome. Please, please do so I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Uh, somebody wrote here for you. Amazing. You overcame that. It's very subjective. Your own worst critic. Right? Exactly. Yep. That's so true. Uh, Davidson, thank you so much for joining us today. That's my hometown. Is it really? There yeah. You That's awesome. Okay. Next question, Brad. Let's do this. What's the craziest dare you ever took? You know, the funny part about that is I never, ever that truth or dare stuff. I never got too, too involved with it because I was always so scared of what people may ask and what what they may find about out about me. But I did take a really stupid bet one time. A guy paid forty dollars and asked me to chug a bot a, a twenty six ounce bottle of vodka, and I did it for the money. And I I was in bad bad shape. I don't think I was hospitalized, but should probably should have been. So that was probably the stupidest bet or dare I ever did, hands down. Yeah, you probably don't remember any of that either, hey? Not much like, after the last couple <laughs> of swallows. <laughs> I don't even know how you got that down. Like, I was an alcoholic, too, and I could There's no ways. Yeah, like, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy. <laughs> I, don't, I remember that. Oh, my word. All right, next question. Let's do this. I love your answers so far, by the way. You're being very honest. <laughs> yeah, I'll continue to be honest. If you could be one superhero, which superhero would you be? And I think I'll add... And why? Oh, does the Punisher count? I I always I read I, comics. I read comics as a kid, and that was like my favorite. Um, he was my favorite kind of comic book guy, I guess, because he was always like the vigilante, and he was always for the downtrodden people, right? And he was always fighting for people that couldn't fight for themselves. And I think that's obviously why I kind of like that whole storyline behind him. But if I had to pick, if Punisher doesn't count, I would pick. Thor, and I think I would probably actually oh, yeah. pick Chris Hemsworth as my <laughs> superhero just because every woman that I know absolutely loves the guy, right? So you are not the only person that's told me. There's I think there was like three guys that I've asked this question to, and every single one of them were like, 
Chris Hemsworth. It's not even about Thor. It's just like, I just want to be Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, well, that's it. Like, I mean, comic book Thor is, you know, he's kind of got a crappy beard and some pretty bad hair. But Chris yeah. Hemsworth, it's like every single woman that I've ever met wants to be that wants to be in love or wants to be with this guy, right? So, I mean, that's probably a pretty good second choice. Yeah, well, Elizabeth thinks you're funny. Oh, so if anybody of you guys are watching right now, let's hear what kind of superhero would you be? If you could pick one superhero and why. Let's hear some answers here. Oh, I think Sheena's answering too. That's a good play. It's Chris Hemsworth. That's my fiance. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sheena. Thanks a lot, honey. <laughs> uh, yeah, Thor. Debbie says Thor too. That's awesome. It's a little bit delayed with the comments sometimes, so it takes a little while. But we'll go back to that. Oh, Elizabeth says Wonder Woman. That's a good one. I think most women would take Wonder Woman, especially the new one, because we have to admit, she is beautiful. Absolutely. Right. I haven't seen the new Wonder Woman movie, but I heard it's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. So next question for you, sir. What band would you be embarrassed to admit you listen to? I want to hear that in the comments, too. <laughs> okay, so I'll give you the solo artist and I'll give you the band. So... I, I got to admit, for the solo artist, I, I'm a believer. Uh, I'm a Bieber no! fan. Just Bieber fan. I, I have to admit it, and I'm sorry. I'm probably going to take a lot of flack over this, but you know, he's an underdog as well, and he, and he writes some pretty some pretty good lyrics and stuff. For advocates for mental health and addictions, so you know, the, the, for some something about the kid makes me like him. And then this is going to get me lynched by a lot of people, but I'm also a Nickelback fan. And there's going to be a lot of people that are like, oh, boo, you know, because I do listen to a lot of diverse music as well. But I mean, any band that can write a song that after you hear it, you walk around singing it for the next four days is doing something right. Exactly. That's what I thought. I guess I'll admit to, okay, not Justin Bieber. I'm probably going to tease you about that for the rest of your life now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Nickelback. I was a huge fan of Nickelback. And then everyone started hating him. And I was secretly crept in my little corner. I'm like, okay, I'll still love them while I sit here. Like, yeah, I actually got a chance to do the security for their last concert. And I volunteered for that concert just so I could hear the band. But then I thought, at least I can tell everybody, oh, I just went to do security. <laughs> <laughs> even though you like fanboying it in the yeah, back. <laughs> even though I was rocking out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that uh who says king for a day king for a day i th oh no that's uh i actually know that's that's her son debbie's son shane he's in a, a a popular band called king for a day and they're oh, wow. super good yeah shane hawken amazing he's got an amazing voice <laughs> i love nickelback that's awesome <laughs> uh susie says i'm 50 and love beaver <laughs> Well, I'm sure I'm going to take a lot of flack about that over the next little while, but you know what? I got to be honest. I said I was going to come on here and be honest. Oh, yeah. you know what? Uh, I'm, I just seen Headley. I actually got to be pretty good friends with uh, a couple of members of the band a few uh, when, uh, years ago when I was running a nightclub and uh, a lot of their actually earlier music got me through some pretty tough times. So yeah. Uh, I thought he was, he's an amazing singer. Hey, it's really too bad what happened to him with that whole Me Too clause. Uh, yeah. I, obviously, I don't support whatever he did, but like, wow, he could sing. Yeah. Great songwriter, too. Yeah. And the rest of the stuff I 
choose not to touch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just we don't talk about any of the sexual stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, Billy Eilish. Billy Eilish is another good one too. I personally, I don't know if anybody can help me on this, but Billy Eilish, like, I feel like she doesn't sing. Like, like, have you heard her music? It's I, I, you know, just a couple of songs. I, I'm not super familiar with. I'm not a, a really familiar with a lot of the the newer pop stuff. I guess. Yeah. Except for, yeah, I listen to a little bit of Ed Sheeran and stuff like that. But oh yeah, me too. Like I never listen to the radio. So every time I listen to the radio, it's always it always new music to me. <laughs> yeah, listened. that's awesome. I think we're going another one. What was your first record, tape or CD that you ever owned? You know, it's a toss up. I, 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 I can't remember for sure. I know my grandpa bought me a Charlie pride CD, like way back in the day, trying to get me started with country music and it just never took. And then my first babysitter bought me Bruce Springsteen born in the USA. And still to this day, I just played that album cover to cover and I still know every word to every song on that album. It's still one of my favorite albums of all time. Wow. Yeah, great. Bruce Springsteen writes amazing lyrics. I love Bruce. Yeah, mine was, um, well, I have to admit, like when I'm a child, like you listen to your parents' music pretty much. Right. right? So my dad, what was it again? Okay, first of all, it's Neil Diamond. Yeah. So listen to Neil Diamond as a kid, and I'm like, this guy's awesome. <laughs> like, and I still think it's pretty cool. Uh, another one was Bon Jovi. <laughs> I was a huge fan of Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi was early influence for me too. Motley Crue, I was inter introduced to Motley Crue when I was like nine. I seen a poster and I'm like, I, I don't know who these guys are, but I got to have their, and then they came out with like shout at the devil. And it was so wow, angst and rebellious that I had to have it. And it was, I was just, I'm still, I'm still a fan to this day. Oh man, that's so awesome, man. Yeah. Motley Crue is pretty amazing. They're still going, man. They're not going to stop. They're just, <laughs> just killing it. Uh, what did she say? Love that uh, Bruce Springsteen album. Oh, yeah. So many gems. Uh, Partridge Family. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Next question. I feel like we're running too quickly in the questions, but I'm having so much fun. Um, where were we? So that's the tape one. Okay. What was your favorite Halloween costume you wore as a child? Oh, that's an easy one. Anything that was Star Wars related. Even when like, you were a kid? Like oh, yeah. Like when I was a kid, that was – I grew up like late 70s, early 80s was when I did all my trick-or-treating, right? And that's when Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, those are the like original released years. And they had those crappy old like plastic – like onesie outfits that you got on that you wore a plastic mask with that had a little strap across the back that froze to your face. And you put the other, you put the other one over top of your like skidoo suit and went out trick or treating. Cause there was usually snow banks on the ground. So, but those were anything star Wars related was my favorite, absolute favorite costumes. Uh, I'm still a huge star Wars fan. So that's awesome. Yeah. I feel like it's <laughs> the Muppets. Um, Animal. Uh, I feel like it's changed. Like when we were kids, uh, like, yeah, Star Wars was huge because it's like that's when it came out. So, like, it was a lot of good movies. And now it feels like the kids are, it's come back around again. Now, all the kids is about Star Wars again. Yeah, absolutely. It's it definitely come full circle. 
which is fine with me. Like I know uh, Sheena's little one, uh, Ryder, he is nine years old and everything is Star Wars. So it's like Star Wars Lego, uh, Star Wars movies. And it's cool because I just sit there and I play Lego with him. Or <laughs> get to watch the movies. Yeah, I'll just watch the movies again. It's pretty awesome. Anybody else in the comments? Let's hear. What was your favorite costume when you grew up on Halloween? <laughs> let's see what you guys were wearing. You want to hear a sad story? I grew up in South Africa. That's why I sound funny. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we did not have Halloween in South Africa. So I never wore a costume till I was 22. Yep. Never got to wear a Halloween costume. Well, I, I think uh, mine almost went to the opposite effect of yours, Nick, where I started working in a nightclub. <clears throat> so we would have like three or four Halloween parties every year. And I just got so sick of Halloween. Like it became my least favorite time of the year. And I'm just starting to like it again now. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like I, I never went to a Halloween party. So I went to one, I think yeah, I was 22 years old and I was Robin Hood. That was my first costume. I wore the green tights and everything. It was bad. <laughs> I think I think one of my other favorite costumes, and I, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a little leery to say this, but I might get canceled. But I went as Mr. T one year, <laughs> and it was uh it was a pretty like off of uh, the A team, yeah. And, and it was a phenomenal costume. I did a great job. I had all the gold chains and the. Uh, I even learned. I like. I even said like, pity the fool. <laughs> And the sad thing is, today you would not get away with that. No, like I could, I definitely couldn't do it. So, just you know, it's changing times, right? But that was definitely one of my favorite costumes too. I put a lot of work into that one. So, oh my word! <clears throat> so, Mike Gleam is from Recovery Army Outreach. So, anybody that uh, is looking for help in the states, we're partnered with them. Amazing, amazing crew there in Philadelphia. Um, so, yeah, he said that he went as himself one year because he wanted the candy. <laughs> that, that's phenomenal <laughs> that's awesome elizabeth says mr t rocks oh yeah i agree it was so cool i don't know is he like dead now or is he alive still i you know i don't even know i think he's alive <laughs> i think he was on like one of the last rocky movies at some point i i don't know to be honest with you nick that's a good question i'll have to google it after no kidding hey i think we would know like i think our generation yeah, i think if he, if he passed away we would know yeah, exactly. All right, next question. Let's hear this. What? What's? Oh no. What's a funny pickup line that works for you? Oh well, a lot of the pickup lines that I used, I, I'm not going to repeat on here. And um, but one of the ones I remember using, and and it's a kind of a funny story, is that um, I it was I think I'll probably even botch it now. Um, I think I said something like your legs must be must be tired because you've been running through my mind all night. <laughs> but I but I screwed it up royally. Whenever I whenever I tried to to like use it on this this girl, I, I screwed up the whole the, the whole delivery of it. And it actually got me a date because the pickup line was so badly done. Oh, she felt pity on me and, oh, and went on a date. Sorry with me. for you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a I got a pity date from a botched pickup line. <laughs> what did she just say? Nick's pickup line that worked for me. Can I kiss you? Was it? <laughs> oh, 
Straight remember. to the point, Nick. Right. Just, <laughs> who needs a pickup line? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, there's something like I was Googling some pickup lines to put on the screen, and some of them are really bad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, oh, I, don't, I don't remember a lot that I would I would care to repeat. That's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right. Who was your childhood actor or actress crush? Oh, that's easy. Either uh, Princess Leia, whoever played Princess Leia, I can't remember her name, or, um, oh. and it should, it'll come to me right away, or excuse me, I was madly in love after I watched Edward Scissorhands with Johnny Depp, I was madly in love with Winona Ryder. She was oh, my yeah. childhood crush. Oh, yeah. That's so true. Mine yeah. was, um, mine was fake. <laughs> Did you ever watch... Who framed Roger Rabbit? Oh yeah, Jessica. <laughs> yeah, Jessica. I, I couldn't remember her name this today when I was thinking of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the you want to hear a funny story about that? I sixteen famously bad choices. I almost got a tattoo of Jessica sitting in a martini cup on my right shoulder. You <laughs> yeah. almost got it, or you you almost got it? I almost got it. Oh. And even worse yet, I made the I made a bad choice and got a a tribal marking mermaid that was like a a naked tribal marking mermaid. <laughs> and talk about famously bad choices! Like I always tell everyone I talk to, make sure you're you're wise, older and wiser when you make get your tattoos. Because <laughs> I I got my first two tattoos that I got when I was young. I got covered up. So yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I honestly think that if you got Jessica, I would be, I would think that's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> probably would have maybe kept that one. Yeah, you know, at least it's got like like movie history to it. But the ones I got were just absolutely terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Look at Mike. Yes, Jessica. <laughs> I think that was like, yeah, I think that was like a crush from a lot of guys our age yeah. when we were younger. That's crazy. Um. Is Princess Leia not my crush? What? Leila? Oh. Um, Carrie Fisher. Yes. That's her name. Yes. She what? struggled with addictions a lot of her life, too. Yeah. She just passed away, too, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. They used her. They made this, like, especially with technology, hey? because they made, it was like a CGI or whatever of, of her in the Lost Star Wars movie, and it looked so good. Like yeah. you, you could see that it wasn't like quite right, but it, it still looked pretty damn good when you looked at it. So those are the questions I had for you. Well, I made it through that part. So <laughs> you did. That was fun. Got to know a little bit about you. We know that Brad loves Justin Bieber. So please tweet that out to everybody you know. <laughs> Maybe that'll be my next tattoo, a Bieber tattoo. I get a Lieber tattooed across my chest. <laughs> Just like a big tattoo on your chest. Oh, that'd be amazing. Mike says, I like the girl from Howard the Duck. What's Howard the Duck? Oh, man. That show was like a cult classic. It was like, was it? It was like this duck that came from outer space and he played guitar. And what? yeah, I can't, I can't remember which girl was in it, though. But I just that I remember that that show. It was it was awesome. I th I still like that show. Oh man, that's crazy. Yeah, like in South Africa, unfortunately, I I never got the privilege of seeing a lot of shows that in North America you guys would watch. So I missed out on 
Um, well, a lot. Like Mr. Dress Up. I have no clue who that is, but I've heard the name. Um, what was the other ones? Oh, there's tons. Anyways, a lot of childhood stuff. Yeah, that's for sure. So those are the questions we have for you today. Now we're going to get into the little more serious stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> I it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody watching right now, uh, once again, uh, thank you for watching that little icebreaker. This is Brad Swarovski, uh, addictions counselor, has been through a lot. Um, he's got a powerful story. So Brad, uh, please, if you could, can you share some of your story with us and let us know a little bit about your struggle and where you are today? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of all my stuff, I think after studying and learning a lot about, uh, I, I kind of call it the causes of, of substance use and addictions and stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff. There's psychological stuff. There's environmental stuff. There's, you know, trauma. There's uh, the inherited stuff that you see, the kind of monkey see, monkey do stuff. And, and I went through, I kind of had the perfect formula of all of it. So, yeah. uh, you know, I was born kind of in that timeline of like children were meant to be seen and not heard. And uh, I'll give you something to cry about. Uh, my dad was a big, loud man. I was, I, I spent a lot of my time scared of him, to be honest. And it caused me some anxiety. And I think also there was a lot of, uh, gatherings and stuff in our, at our house when I was younger. So there was a whole, and there was a lot of drinking and smoking cigarettes, not a lot of drug use, but a lot heavy drinking. Yeah. Well, the first time I went out to a social atmosphere, I thought, oh, I'm just going to drink. And then when I drank, it took away my anxiety. And, and, you know, it kind of just, it kind of just spiraled from there. And, and it, I was able to talk to girls. I was, able, I kind of built this personality, uh, 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 this person that I really wasn't with alcohol Yeah. and, and people started to like me for it. So I just continued doing it. And by the time I was 19 years old, I had, been kicked out of post-secondary school i'd been kicked out of my first uh house that i was living in i had two impaired driving charges i'd been to my first detox and rehab center had my first addictions counselor and went to jail all, all when i was 19 Ooh. and i didn't think that this was a problem i just thought i had bad luck like it was really kind of that situation and then I started working in a nightclub in the city. I was introduced to heavy drugs, introduced to cocaine, and I fell in love with cocaine. Like it was instantaneous. I, I fell in love with cocaine. And so alcohol and cocaine basically were my everyday life. When I lived when I worked in those nightclubs, I would get there at 10 in the morning. I'd have my first drink at 10 in the morning. I'd drink throughout the day. I'd start using Coke about supper time. I would drink and use cocaine together till about six o'clock in the morning when I'd either pass out or just stay awake, yeah. depending which drug I used more. And then I would just do that all over again. And at the age of 31, it all caught up to me and I had a heart attack. Ooh, and um, yeah, I, I, cocaine and alcohol induced heart attack. Doctor told me right then, if you don't give this up, then you're gonna die, you'll be dead by Christmas. So I got scared, I quit. But I didn't, when I quit the first time, I didn't do any of the things that you that I, as an addictions counselor, tell people to do now. You know, I didn't change the atmosphere that I was living in. I stayed working in the nightclub. I didn't work through any of my childhood traumas. You know, I didn't do any of that stuff. So within two years, I was using again. I gave up alcohol for a while, and I just tried a strict diet of cocaine, and that was super bad. I started to go through a lot of, like, paranoia. I started to have um, just a lot of really, really crazy thoughts. And... Um, 
yeah, it was it was not a time for me. And uh, I met a woman in the midst of this mess. She got pregnant. Uh, I had a daughter, and when I had that daughter, that was I kind of vowed to her. I, I had had a rough relationship with my dad, so I promised my little girl that I was going to be a better father. And you know, I just kept failing and failing, Nick. And it was uh, I kept relapsing, and every time I relapsed, I felt that hopelessness and that shame. Yeah. And it it just it really took control of me. Uh, and I moved away thinking I could run from my problems. Uh, anybody who's ever rat tried to run away from addictions, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, and eventually I found myself back in my hometown of Davidson and I was basically drinking myself to death. You know, my family had given up on me. I was, I'd almost lost my job. I was drinking 40 to 80 ounces a day. I was having seizures when I tried to quit drinking. I was still using cocaine. So serious health issues there and you know all none of that stuff would really would push me to quit till eventually my daughter's mom said hey if you don't clean yourself up the last handful of times you've been here you i could smell booze in your breath you know we're worried about what's going on if you can take care of our daughter and she said i'm gonna file for sole custody and it was like that was kind of the the big punch yeah. in the gut the took the life out of me and I, I had to knew I had to make a change. So I reached out to some people to a, a great boss I had. And I knew a guy that had went through this Christian faith recovery program called teen challenge. And I, I phoned this, my boss, he, he talked to this guy and 20 minutes after I phoned him, this guy had the referral package sitting in my lap in front of me in my little bachelor apartment in Davidson that was riddled with empty vodka bottles and overflowing ashtrays. Right. So <laughs> He, he brought this treatment plan, put it in front of me and I, I, I was off, I was going to go to treatment, but I went to detox one last time. I, I pretty much lived in detox and other treatments over the last two years. And I went to detox one last time and this guy there challenged me. He said, I said, I'm going to teen challenge. And he said, who cares? So what, you know, and, and I was deflated. I'm like, what do you mean? So what? And he's like, if you don't change what's going on, Brad, nothing's going to change. And he explained to me, he explained all this stuff about changing environments and working through past traumas and doing all this stuff. And he said, if you don't make a change in yourself, you can go through this year long program, but you're going to come out the exact same and you're going to be right back in the same, the same situation. And that's pretty much where my recovery began. I, I went into to this teen challenge program, August 21st, 2012, and I've been sober ever since. And it's it's there's been there's been a lot of there was a lot of darkness like that's the very Coles notes version of my life but absolutely yeah you know so it, it was uh you know like I said I was ruining families friends I was dying I was dying in my own apartment and yeah. I, I I've shared some stuff with the magazine some stories around around what that was like and and those the, all those stories are true true words I was like found myself on my floor spitting out teeth and I bit halfway through my tongue having a seizure one time. And, you know, I smelled like I was dying. I smelled like rotting from the inside out. It was, wow. I was not in a good spot. Yeah, no kidding. And it's, you know what, I have to mention the fact that you said that you came out of rehab and you realized that um, you, ne you never changed anything. You might've, you might've been dry for a couple of months that you're in rehab but if you don't actually change anything when you're out there, like we learned in rehab is people, places, and things. And you literally have to do the changes. Uh, if you don't change it, 
And if you don't do the work that's going into it, we call it dry drunk. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of my clients about that whole dry drunk idea. And, and it comes down to a lot of things. It comes down to the, like you said, the people, places and things. But it comes down to dealing with your past traumas. It comes down to setting healthy boundaries with people. Um, and, and the biggest thing for me that I found was, and that I find when, when I look at people who I find people coin dry drunks, is that I had to find a way that I could be happy without the substances in my life. And if I couldn't be happy without the substances in my life, I was just going to keep going back to them. So exactly. I had to figure out through all these different things, through self-care, through through finding out new, new enjoyments in my life, how I could be happy without cocaine and booze because I'd spent my whole life using it to be happy. Yeah, no kidding. You got to find, it's like just because you go to rehab, it doesn't, it doesn't fix everything in your life. It doesn't fix, you know, the things that, because when you come out of rehab, there's broken pieces everywhere. And you, like you said, like if your situation hasn't changed on the outside, it's like you're walking right back into the fires of hell and, and you're going to get burnt. Absolutely. I think that's a common misconception that people have. Like, you know, I, with client, with the clients I have and stuff like that, I think their families push so hard for rehab and I'm not, I'm definitely, I'm a, I'm a supporter of rehabilitation programs, but, but I think that what people really need to realize is that I always used to say, how, how can you fix 22 years of addictions in 28 days of recovery in, in a 28 day recovery program? You know, there's got to be pieces that go along with it. There's got to be, you know, follow up afterwards. There's got to be the work that's done prior, the work that's done in the recovery programs, and then the work that's done from addictions counselors, family members, anybody who advocates for that person. And then that person themselves, when they come out of the program, you can't just come out and go, look at me 28 days. Hey, I'm fixed. Yeah, exactly. Hey, and it, and it's a lot of work. Like you still have to continue the work. You still have to go to your appointments with your addictions counselor. You still have to work on yourself because it's not going to get fixed in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever you want to take. Right. So I think yeah. that's a powerful message. What you're bringing to people right there is that you have to change pretty much everything for it to work. It's it's addiction sucks. It's powerful. Yeah. Well, let, let me tell you this, the, the year that I came out of the recovery program. So I, I was, I told you about the part leading up to it with all the seizures and, uh, and all that stuff and the like lose, starting to lose family members, losing friends, losing, starting to lose jobs, stuff like that. That was one of the toughest years of my life. Right. Then I went into a recovery program where I was pretty much isolated from the world for a year. This program's a year long, right? So I started to work on myself. I started to do the counseling. I started to develop a routine. I started to, to self-care, uh, exercise, figure out what works for me to make me happy. And then I came out and that first year out without that support of that recovery program was almost as tough as the year prior to going in. Yeah. Because you come out and a lot of places send you out unprepared. Yeah. I'm not ready, not ready to deal with what you're getting back into. I moved into my home community where there, there it's a small town, Saskatchewan atmosphere. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of, well, you know, weekends are, are made for partying, you know, like people get off their, their nine to five job on, on uh, Friday afternoon and they go to a barbecue or they go to a, a lounge or a bar or they go sit in a friend's yard and, and drink. Mm -hmm. So I came right back into that. 
and was not prepared for it one little bit. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, and I wasn't either. Like, honestly, um, for those of you who know my story, like I, Brad, I would come out of rehab and I would go straight back into work. Even though I was struggling with PTSD, I was struggling with my addiction. I had some sobriety time when I go to rehab. I'd maybe stay sober for another six months. Um, the longest I did was a year and a half. And I'd relapse after relapse after relapse because all I did was go to go to treatment, try to get better, but I wouldn't take any of the advice of my counselors. I, they were like, no, you have to change. EMS is causing you trauma. Like you, you keep going back to the same thing every single time. Maybe that's a common denominator. And I just didn't want to believe it because that was my identity. That's how I thought that I was who I was, who I was supposed to be. And quitting EMS um, was a big decision. But sometimes it comes down to that huge decision in your life in order to stay sober because sobriety is more important, right? Because you're not going to have a life without sobriety. Absolutely. And, and I was the same way, Nick, like I came, I, I would come out of a detox center and on a, on a Sunday and go back to work on the Monday because I needed to be back at work. And, and, and I'd come out of a recovery program, same thing. And I just white knuckled it. Like it, it, I was just basically bullshitting everybody and myself. Yeah. Think not ever working. You know, I would, I would listen to what they said, but I would never put any of the stuff that they told me into play. So it would just be like, okay, let's go back into the exact same habits that landed me in here to begin with. And within two weeks, I was sitting in a lounge or I was sitting back in my, usually sitting in my apartment, hiding it because I didn't want people to know. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, you got to get into those, like, I'm, I'm doing this uh, YouTube thing. Uh, I'm called, I called it the long road of recovery because the, I, I, I've heard the long the road to recovery, but I called it the, the road of recovery because I don't think there's a finish point. I don't think there's an end point in recovery. Mm-hmm. I think for me, my recovery is going to continue on as long as I live. Yeah. So, and what I did was I started putting together all these things that worked for me, all these things that I was talking about before: self care, um, scheduling, goals, forgiveness, dealing with past traumas owning your shit, taking responsibility for what you've done in your life. And, and, you know, it, that's, that was one of the hardest ones for me was, and it still is, was being honest with people and, and trying to make amends for all the terrible shit that I did. Yeah, I totally agree. And anybody watching right now, I highly suggest you check out Brad's material. Um, he's a fantastic writer. He also writes for the magazine. We are warriors magazine, which we're all about. And, uh, yeah, it's it's powerful because you've learned lessons. You've learned. You have the experience. You've been there. So, you know what? Listening to you, like, honestly, if you're struggling right now and you're watching, um, listen to the people that have made it through. Um, you know, we're not, we're no special people. We're not like, we don't have superpowers. Like, Brad is a human being, but he's gone through it, you know? So instead of getting to the low that Brad went through, you know, you don't have to get to that point. You can actually make it through with Brad's advice and what he does. Brad, can you give us a little bit of, of advice of things that you did mention a little bit of it, of things that you felt that you really need to work on uh, when it comes to recovery? Yeah, I mean, there was, there's so much stuff. Uh, so I can go back to like the, the teen challenge piece and what they helped me with. And, and um, what, what they really helped me with was they, their, there was a schedule every day you got up at six o'clock in the morning and I was a mess all the time. I had no, there was no rhyme nor reason to my life. 
So I was, I never knew what day it was that, you know, I never knew what time it was. I could tell what part of the day it was by if it was dark out or not, but I was drinking so much that I, I lost full, like almost full weeks. Mm-hmm. So I, so getting that scheduling back in was very important, you know, starting to set goals with what I wanted to do um, after that and making sure that they were that SMART acronym, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely, all that stuff, you know, setting goals and not ridiculous goals. Like I remember I said to my counselor one time, oh, I owe all this money, you know, $10,000 or whatever. I want to have it paid off in a couple months. And he's like, come on. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. Give your freaking head a shake, man. Yeah. Like, you know, so that was important. And then I, I started seeing a counselor and at Teen Challenge, I got to see a counselor once a week mm-hmm. and I started unloading some of this stuff. And what I really realized was when I started talking about it, that's when the true healing began. And it, and it gave me an opportunity at Teen Challenge to share my story and to put a, put a voice behind my pain. And when I started talking about it, it felt like the whole world lifted off my shoulders. Mm. And that was just the teen challenge piece. Then I went home and then I realized, okay, now, now I need to, to work on all these other things. I need to have healthy connections. Mm-hmm. I was lacking any kind of healthy friends or support. Yeah, so so I had of me. Oh, I was just saying, so you're basically starting over. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, so then I started looking to, okay, who supports me? My family supported me. I had a I had a good group of friends. They've stuck with me till this day. My hats are off to to friends in my life that that have stuck with me and all those guys. And one of the those guys he made a comment earlier, uh, Adam. You know that guys like that have they've stuck with me through all this and they supported me and they didn't badger me into going back into my habits and stuff like that. So I had to get healthy connections, mm-hmm. and, and then stuff like like the other stuff I talked about. You know. Um, self-care was big for me. Uh, I didn't, I had all this spare time and I needed to, to, to figure out what to do with it. So I started like looking into holistically related stuff. I started following some indigenous teachings and stuff like that, because I'd heard a lot through the detox in Saskatoon about these indigenous teachings. And I started looking after myself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, checking in every day, making sure, okay, where am I low today? I'm low mentally. How come? You know, oh, I'm tired. Oh, I, I've overthought this. Oh, I can't seem to get. And and I found that when I started to, to dip in all the air in one area, they would all start to dip a little bit. So I had to be careful with that. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness. The, you know, that was a huge one for me. Like I said, owning my shit. I, I'm in addictions, as everyone knows, and outside of addictions, I, I still struggle with with being honest. You know, it's uh it's probably one of the hardest things in my life to, to deal with uh, because I, I lied to people for so long that it just became habitual. Mm-hmm. So, but not only did I have to own my shit and forgive myself or ask for forgiveness, I had to forgive others and forgive myself, you know, and then deal with trauma. Um, be happy. That was, that was the big thing. Cause like I said before, I realized that I thought all my happiness was weighed around this party lifestyle that I was, that I was living. And then I started thinking, but you haven't been to a party in the last four years. You just lock yourself in your goddamn apartment and drink yourself to death. Like, isn't that true? Hey, that realization that you think that you're having a good time, but you're not. Yeah. Like yeah. I would be so drunk by nine 30 in the morning that I couldn't even think about a party at eight, at eight o'clock at night. Yeah. Like I, I was a mess all the time. And, and then I started realizing, wow, 
I, I hadn't been happy for a long time. Yeah. And my daughter um, made me, you know, my daughter came back into my life and she never really left, but I was really unhealthy for a while. Yeah. And, and she came back in and I started realizing just how important she was in my life. And that, you know, the stuff that, the stuff that I did with her, I love just as much more, 10 times more than drinking. Yeah. And, and it was important for me to start realizing, Hey, like I started to work out. It made me feel good. I felt good about myself. I, I felt I, the endorphins that you get from working out, I started eating good. I started, you know, sleeping better. I, I, I had a, got a job that I liked. I started hanging out with people that, and actually remembering shit that I was doing. Then I had all this great shit with my daughter and, and it was like, I, I haven't been happy for a long time and now I'm happy and, and I don't haven't had, and I'm not drinking anything. Yeah. You know, I'm not using any drugs except for caffeine. And at the time a little bit, of, well, not a little bit, a lot of nicotine as well, <laughs> but, but you know, uh, it, it, it just, th those, all those things together for me came together. And, and that's why I said, I got a, like a 10 step kind of diagram that I go through and I'm doing videos on my YouTube channel <clears throat> around. This is what, what worked for me and whether the thing is, is with the videos I do, you can plug in your own ideas. Mm -hmm. You know what, like what I had to forgive myself for, obviously Nick's not going to be asking for the same forgiveness and what I do for self-care, Nick's not going to be doing for the same, Nick's not going to be doing the same thing. You know, like what makes me happy doesn't make you happy. But I think all those things are an integral part of being sober and being, and being in, in recovery. Yeah. I agree. And it's, and it seems so cliche because a lot of those things are basic human emotions, like forgiveness, yeah. right? Or human actions, I would say forgiveness, resentment, this work on resentment, you know, it's, um, these are just basic things that when you're in addiction, you just do not deal with, right? And you just, you feel like you, I think there's also that fear that you, if you do start dealing with them, it's going to be worse than the addiction. And that is not the case for a lot of, it is crappy dealing with things that you've done and apologizing and trying to get over it and dealing with resentment. But that rainbow, you know, that sunshine that you get at the end of that is so rewarding. That sobriety, um, it really is. And I honestly, I want to encourage people to, to take that route. You know, um, you think you're addiction. You think that you can't get through addiction, but I promise you, you can. You can. It, it, it Sometimes it takes years, but it doesn't have to. Follow direction, plan things, change things. And I'm giving you a resource right now. Here is Brad. You know, Brad works with addictions. He's been through it. And he has a YouTube channel, which I am going to make sure that I post that afterwards, Brad, um, and get everybody to go check it out. But that's truly is amazing. I got a few more questions, but before we get to that, anybody that's watching right now, please, at the end of this, um, I would love to read your questions for Brad. So if you have a question on your mind, pop it in the questions right now or the comments. So later on at the end, we can just start asking Brad uh, questions and any advice that he has for us, things like that. So Brad, yes. you, men you mentioned uh, the good things in your life now. So positivity. So Life is not always perfect. We yeah. know that, right? Nope. So you have a story for us. Um, I don't think you mentioned it before, but you had something that happened to you in sobriety. And I think it's important to 
mention that and talk about it because you know your life isn't going to be perfect when you're out of uh, addiction you're still going to be dealing with crap and you had the perfect example or not perfect the crappiest thing happened to you <laughs> but, but you still got through it and sober can you let us know about that yeah uh well so i think one part too that i think it's important that i touch on before i go into the story here is yeah the other piece that i that i missed and i and i never usually miss this part but for some reason tonight i did is that the teen challenge gave me was they gave me faith and that looks and that looks different for a lot of people and I'm not here to tell you, tell anyone what to believe in, tell anybody what God they should follow or anything like that. I'm just telling you that Teen Challenge gave me faith and it made a huge difference in my recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of, it plays a big part in this story that's coming up. And, and like Nick said, life can be shit sometimes. <laughs> it really can. Like, I mean, there's good days, there's bad days. Sometimes there's good months, bad months, good years, bad years, right? Like, it's just the way life goes. and, and it, it it's the it's it's pretty much as certain as inevitable as death that you're gonna have some bad luck in life. Exactly. And, and um, I know. I mean, I was. I think I. I want to say I was three years, maybe four years, um, clean at the time, and I had things have been going really well for me in my life, and you know, the reconnection with my daughter. Um, things were going well at work. I had a great job. I was I was making decent money making really good money living in a small town, paying a little bit of rent. So, you know, finances were good. I'd managed to dig myself kind of out of a fairly big hole. And and it's like you said too, Nick, like this is a, such an important thing to bounce back to is that w- when you're in the throes of addiction, everything seems so worthless, so hopeless, so useless. Like you can't do anything. You can't, you're never going to get out. Believe me, I've seen some people climb out of some serious shit. And you can do it. You can. It just takes all the stuff we talked about before, support. You can do it. And I love that Nick's podcast keeps echoing that. But anyways, back to my story, I guess. <laughs> um, I was about three or four years um, sober when this happened. I, I had had a back injury at work. And I was going through some physiotherapy and good support with the work group. It was the same people that sent me to the treatment program. And uh, so I was going through physiotherapy for some ruptured discs in my lower back. And I got to the end of my physiotherapy and, you know, life was pretty good. I was getting ready to go back to work. And um, I went for my final CT scan and the guys, the doctor said, Hey, your, your back looks incredible. Like, you know, it looks like you're going to have a full recovery with minimal pain, which sounded great. And he said, but I'm kind of concerned about this spot in your kidney. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, well, you go see your family doctor and have and have a discussion with her. It's probably just cysts. Lots of men 30 years old and up get cysts on certain organs. And I said, okay. Didn't think too much of it. Went to my family doctor. She said the same thing. She didn't think too much of it, but said wanted she wanted to be safe. So she sent me for a biopsy. Doctor said the same thing. It's probably just cysts. You'll probably never hear from us again. Uh, woke up the next morning to a phone call from the doctor and I knew. Uh, I got diagnosed with cancer in my kidney and, you know, it was, it was a shitty, it was some shitty information to get for sure. But what I realized is that, first of all, I didn't believe that my higher power, that my God had brought me through 22 years of addictions to wipe me out with a fricking tumor. I I just wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't have it. I, I, I believed I had a purpose 
and that that purpose was eventually to be to help other people and that this just wasn't going to beat me and so that positive I, it was shitty news absolutely but i i kept that positive mind frame and that faith and all that stuff i remember somebody in my community coming up to me and saying oh man we heard the terrible news you got cancer and i said it would be terrible if they told me that it was inoperable and i only had three months to live to get my my things in order but they told me that the prognosis looks good and so i kept this positive attitude and i july 20 or july 15th of 2000 and 15 2015 or 16 i can't remember now yeah. uh, it'll be six years for me so 15 be six years this this july that i've been cancer free so Congrats, i mean buddy. yeah life life throws you some curveballs life can deal you a shitty hand but it, it's a lot of what i try and express to people is a lot of recovery is about frame of mind and about you know, um, positivity and being healthy and having faith and trusting people and relying on your supports and resources and stuff like that. And I did all that stuff. And, and I was a lucky one. I, I truly yeah. consider myself blessed, but I believe that there was a purpose for me. And, and maybe that is just doing what I'm doing right now. So. Amen. And I'm not afraid to talk about God on these, on these lives because he, got me through the worst moments i used to when i felt very alone it was i always felt that i had somebody um there with me the whole time they didn't want to see me in that position and wanted me out of it but i was the one that had to make that move right i remember uh this is off topic a little bit but i, I remember uh falling on my knees brad and i was like bawling and crying and i was begging god i was like take my addiction away i was like i cannot do it and I was blaming God too. And I was just like, you did this to me, you know? And it was, it was a, a very painful moment in my life that I'll always remember. But the thing is, I never realized that there was just doors opening all around me, but I was the one that had to walk through them. And that was a hard, a hard lesson for me to learn. I wanted to uh, touch on something very important with what you were talking about. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have this addiction which is right. a disease, right? We've already, it's a fact now, it's a medical disease. Um, but you also had cancer, which is a disease. Right. What was the response for you? Now, these are two diseases, right? Um, stigma plays a big role in an addict's life uh, before and after. Um, what do you feel was the, did you, were you treated differently with the, the two things or how was your life with those two? Uh, um, I mean, I, I I always like to start this out by saying that that the the medical uh, profession and the doctors have come a long way since I went since I presented in the hospital having my heart attack. But I know when I was 31 years old, I presented in the hospital and I was having a coke. I I I admitted that I was a co heavy cocaine user and an alcoholic after I had been admitted having the heart attack. And I remember the doctor said to me, well, then you brought this upon yourself, didn't you? Wow. And, and, and I okay. remember just, I remember after that, what happened to me was, is I was afraid to go to talk to anyone, anybody yeah. that I thought could possibly be considered somewhat of a medical professional, whether it was counselors, doctors, nurses, you know, anybody at a detox or rehab, um, anyone, period about my addictions because it was, I felt like, well, look at, 
I brought this on myself. The doctor told me that, you know, mm-hmm. I felt absolute shame and disgust after that. I actually checked myself out of the hospital before having the final prognosis and they had to send all my stuff out in the mail to connect me with, uh, with my doctors, my cardiac doctors afterwards, because I felt so shitty about that. And, and I know that when I pr- presented with cancer, that it was, it was certainly there. The, nobody ever said to me, well, you brought this upon yourself. <laughs> nobody nobody <laughs> asked me about my diet. Nobody yeah. asked me, you know, Oh, are you, you know, are you 30 pounds overweight? Did you maybe bring some of this on yourself with the, your <laughs> eating habits or, you know, did you smoke cigarettes? Cause maybe that caused it. Nobody said none of that shit to me. Yeah. You know, they just said, Oh, here's your supports. Let's do surgery. We're, let's take care of you. Let's, you know, uh, I was treated pretty much like gold. Yeah. And, and I mean, I seen a lot of the, the stigmas through people in my life too, like that when, you know, like I, I always tell the story about when, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had people dropping off gift baskets on my, on my front door. But when I was going through addictions, people walked across the street to get away from me, (laughs) you know, it's, and it's, it's sad, but true. And it's just, and, and luckily, and I, 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 or not luckily, I want to say, thankfully, what I see is I see a change in people. I see mental health and addictions being recognized for the disease that they are. and, And for, and I see more support coming around that than there was before. Um, it, it just, it's, it, I'm just so happy to see that. So there, there is a huge change. So mm-hmm. all this stuff that's happened, people are opening their eyes to this more and more often. And the more we talk about it and the more stuff like this happens, the more podcasts, the more support, the more people see it in the, in the media, the more people talk about Prairie harm reduction, not getting their funding stuff like that the more people shine lights on those situations the more people go geez i never even knew about that to begin with right yeah and and it opens people's eyes i mean i I talk about i'm pretty sure that if you ask my family they carry a pretty different perspective around recovery and addictions you know now than they did 25 years ago yeah I, i i believe that and it's not even that long because like when i started ems the, the whole stigma around PTSD, for instance, I feel like it's in the same category. It was this huge stigma. And I feel like now people are slowly coming out of that and talking about it and doing something about it and being open about it. But I, I still feel like um, that's still the battle, Brad, for everybody is with addictions, PTSD or mental health. We talk about it. And the ones that talk about it, you know, they say, oh, you're making such an impact and stuff. But the people are still too scared to come forward because they're still terrified of what people will think of them or how they're going to treat them. Um, yeah. So they'd rather sit in that pain. You know, vulnerability, that's another thing that I talk about in, in my groups that I do, is one of the hardest things that people can do mm-hmm. to, to get out there and really talk about yourself, to to start like I say, like I talk about to start owning your shit, to start, you know, saying, start talking about stuff that happened to you when you were younger, to start talking about feelings that you've had, to start trying to process all the things that are causing this and be vulnerable and put a voice to this stuff. It is not easy. It's mm-hmm. probably one of the hardest things you can do. You know, I, I had a chance of, I had a, a great opportunity to share my story in Alan Kaler's book, Mental Health. And it talks to men about mental health and addictions. And and we're seeing this men, especially men over 35, they have this, they were raised, you know, 
you don't talk about your pain, you know, you no. fall down, you rub some dirt in it and you move on. Right. Like, yeah. and I want to be one of those people, Nick, and I can tell you do too, that make people feel like it's okay, that there's mm -hmm. a safe place to come and share their story. And I want to be one of those people that, that I'm six foot one, 220 pounds covered in tattoos. I cry on podcasts all the time. <laughs> uh, I, I cry in movies. I know people are going to make fun of me for it. And I don't give a fuck, pardon my language. Yeah, I make love fun that. Of me, make fun of me if you want. Because yeah. you know what? The people that are carrying all this shit around and are afraid to cry and are afraid to talk, they're the people that are hurting inside the most. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And there's, you know, I remember when I first came out and said that I struggled with PTSD and my colleagues found out I went to rehab. And, you know, it was, I'll be honest, but the first time it was like, okay. And they were like, okay, we'll give you some credits. You know, I'm sorry that you're struggling. The third time wasn't the same, <laughs> you know, cause it's a journey. Like you said, recovery is a journey. It's not, there is no end point of it. And for me, it was like, I had to go through my own journey, but it was hell for the fact that I, I was not treated very well. I got messages, people talking about me, rumors, um, things that weren't true, you know. Um, now, I had resentments in the past, not not so much anymore, like whatever, right? I'm at that point right now where I'm like, fuck it. Sorry for my language, everybody, but it's true. It's just, you know, I'd rather, I'm happy now, you know, I'm in recovery, I'm smiling, I'm talking to people like Brad, right? That's That's in recovery and the life of recovery is a million times better than in addiction. And I feel like we get to learn things about ourselves that the average person, even if they don't have addiction, doesn't do. Right. Because yeah, we I, dig. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other, the thing that you, with what you're just talking about too, is so many people said to me, I remember, well, why can't you just come out for a couple drinks or, <laughs> you know, why don't you just drink like a normal person? I remember hearing yeah. that like, Oh, and, and what, and it's the same that people who are depressed, they get like, well, just try and be happier. Yeah. <laughs> like just like just shit. I wish, I wish it was easy. Oh, I wish I would have thought of that. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was just that easy. Right. But the thing is, is the more people like yourself, myself, some of my great friends in the community that are mm -hmm. working towards this, the more people scream it from the rooftop, the more people are forced to hear. And then they stop asking those questions like, well, why, why can't you just drink like a normal person or why can't you just be happy mm -hmm. or why are you scared to go out and do stuff? You know what? Like the people without that have never suffered an anxiety attack have no idea what it's like. Just like people who don't struggle with addictions have no idea what it's like to not be able to, to, to have a drink without drinking to excess, to not yeah. be able to drink to bury pain, whatever that looks like. Right. So the more that stuff like this happens and the more that you just talk to whoever, I'll, I'll talk to anybody that'll listen. Yeah. <laughs> like, and and some people wish that I would shut the hell up. <laughs> but it's, I you know, I, I go, I talk to family members. I talk to friends. I talk to people in my community. Anybody that's asked me anything about addictions, mental health, I'll talk to them as much as they'll allow it. Just because I want people to know. I don't want that that 20 years ago thought where it's like, addictions is like you're the you're the scourge of the community or the black sheep of the family like everybody's going through something guys yeah i totally agree and, and actually coming forward gives you power because think about it this way if someone says to me hey nick 
you're an alcoholic. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm an alcoholic and my life is great because I've, I'm re in recovery and I've been through it and it doesn't have that power on you. But if you're hiding and you're in the shadows, you know, those things that people are going to, they're going to judge you anyways. Because if you think they don't know that you're struggling, please take a look at your life again. Because when we're in the struggle, we think that we are so sly. We think that we are, are fooling everybody. The only person you are fooling right now is you. They know. So might as well just come forward, get better, and be happy. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's so uh, that's so funny how the like you you think you have the wool pulled over everyone's eyes when you're in the middle of your addiction, right? Like, well, I'm drunk at ten in the morning, but I can fool everyone. <laughs> right? And like hiding booze. Like I was bad for hiding booze, right? Like I would hide it the most ridiculous places. I would hide it for myself, Brad. <laughs> my, my favorite thing was I, I would put a piece of gum and uh, a couple pieces of gum in my mouth. I mean, I, I was drinking 80 ounces of vodka a day as if you can't smell it. If I drank 80 <laughs> ounces of orange juice, I'd smell like orange juice for crying out loud. Right. Like, <laughs> you can't drink that much of anything and not smell like it. Like, yeah. you know, but a couple pieces of gum should mask this just fine off to a family function. I go. <laughs> right. And then they question you and you like defensive as hell. Yeah. How I dare you? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. so true. Uh, Susie has a question here. Uh, do you want to read this, Brad? Sure. What do you feel is the best way to help a teen who has PS PTSD and depression and a long family history of alcoholism um, understand his risk? So if, I, if I'm understanding the, the qu question correctly, it, the PTSD, depression, and family alcoholism are all coming prior. The teen doesn't have them. Kind of sounds that way. The yeah, way I'm so, reading it, yeah. So I think awareness, uh, awareness is the answer to everything, and and being uh, open and like tell, making sure that the, the teen knows that he's got a place where he can come that's a safe place. Yeah. And uh, you know, I I went through this with with my daughter. I went through this with you know friends and family who've asked me this. Uh, I just tell I told my daughter honestly, if you don't feel comfortable talking to me, let me know. And I'll arrange somebody else who you can talk to that you feel comfortable talking to. But yeah, please yeah. make that first step to come talk to me about it. And, and we have open conversations. And, and I and I talk to her honestly about my addictions. And, um, and oh, I just seen he has mental illness but doesn't drink yet. It, it's that awareness piece. And, and the thing is, is all you can do from someone who struggled with addictions and has seen tons of people struggle with addictions – all you can do is be there for them and make them aware because if they choose to try that, if they choose to go down the road of trying alcohol, experimenting with drugs, they're going to do that probably regardless. The, you know, unfortunately you can talk to them, just be open, be honest, tell them, educate them so that they know what the, what can happen. And then the, unfortunately with most people that just, you got to let them make their own choices. Yeah. And I think that comes down to, uh, I love that, Brad. And I think it also comes down to the fact that um, talking about mental illness, right? Because you mentioned that when we're kids, especially as men, we're told not to feel anything, not to talk about anything, to suck it up, to, to basically be a statue. And that is the most unhealthiest way that you can grow up. You basically grow up like 
these little robots that we see today that are emotionless, miserable, unhappy, and they have these walls up like so thick that no one can break through. And that's because of a lot of our upbringings and then how we were taught. So I totally agree, Brad. Another, another thing that I wanted to say to Susie too is mm -hmm. um, reach out to people. There's so many great resources out there that people have no idea about concurrent disorder programs that talk about how mental health and addictions can can really spark, uh, ignite off of each other and how they walk hand in hand sometimes. When you can provide people with awareness in advance and education in advance, it helps them have an idea of what to look for, what, what to stay away from. It gives them that, like I said, that awareness piece. So reach out to people. For the most part, people who work in the mental health field, they work here in this field because they want to help people. So mm -hmm. if you phone somebody and say, listen, hey, can I get some advice from you? And they say no, then phone me and I'll try to help you out because mm -hmm. most people will will try and, and point you in the right direction. And there are a lot of great youth programs, a lot of great adult programs, concurrent disorders, groups, day programs, stuff like that that people can get into as a preventative measure or even if they've already started to struggle with it. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. That's that's amazing advice here, man. Uh, Chris, da uh, Adam, I guess that's Adam, hey? A damn Christopher. <laughs> yeah, that's my friend Adam, yeah. Okay. Hey, buddy, what is your biggest regret and also the one thing you love the most about your life in sobriety? Okay. Biggest regret. Um, Man, I don't know because regrets are so hard. I try not to live in that world of regret and the what ifs and the like that butterfly effect theory where if you go back and change one thing, it would change everything. Mm. Like, I mean, I I've never said, oh, I wish I wouldn't have had my first drink. I, I, I spent 15 years working in the nightclub industry, 13 years working in the nightclub industry, enjoyed the hell out of it, made a lot of great friends. If I go back and change anything, I lose those people in my life. Right. Mm. So, so I don't have a lot of real big regrets, you know, um, honestly, if I had to go with regrets, it would be, I've got a, f a few people that were, that are deceased now that I didn't get to say what I wanted to say to them before they passed. Mm. And, and that's, that's kind of my only regrets in life is that I didn't get the one guy, you know, to be honest, this is, this is probably one of the biggest ones. One guy is the guy that I talked about from detox that challenged me, that made such a big change in my life. I never got the chance to go back to detox and tell him how much what he did meant to me. Mm. And he passed away um, about a year and a half ago, I believe now. So that's a regret of mine for sure. And what I love the most about sobriety is sobriety. <laughs> like <laughs> Everything that comes with it, um, no hangovers, waking up happy, um, reconnection with old friends, remembering what I do, getting to be a great father to my daughter, the list goes on and on and on. And all those things are part of sobriety and recovery. And, and I, I truly, I love this lifestyle. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's, man, that's awesome. That's a great answer. Uh, Chris just said, great answer. <laughs> look, uh, always look forward. That's true though. Um, yeah. Like I also feel the same way that if we, if I, I, I don't regret anything. Like, I regret things that I've said, um, things that I've done, but I don't regret having a disease because I don't feel like I would be the person I am today. I don't feel like I would have found 
my higher power. I don't feel like I would be in the journey I am today. I wouldn't be sitting here right now talking to you and making these connections. So I, I agree with you completely. I'm on the same page. You know, and, and that's such a, you know, that's such a tricky question too, Nick. I mean, obviously uh, I regret lying to my parents, stealing from my yeah. parents, all that kind of stuff. I, I don't want people to think, oh, this guy thinks he's, he's got no regrets. No, clearly I do. But I just, I just live in this realistic world where I know that I can't go back. Uh, I always say, you know, you can't change, you can, you can learn from your past, but don't dwell on it or live in it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like just, just learn from it and move on. And that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, I, I did a lot of shitty things to a lot of great people and, and I'm going to forever carry that with me, but it, it's now my turn to try and turn around and, and, and make things right. I'm, I'm a very karmatic person too, where I believe that, you know, you put good shit out there. Good shit happens. Me too. Yeah. I agree with you. And yeah. And maybe a regret, regret's not the right word. Like, yeah, I totally believe I regret things, but I wouldn't change it. You know what I mean? Like it wouldn't change my addiction. I, cause I know they would have been crap either way. So I feel maybe this was the better route. Who knows? Like who knows? Right. Like, um, we'll leave that to our higher power. Um, wow, man. This hour, like I think we're at hour 15 or <laughs> yeah. like this flew by. So I'm just going to read this a few messages here um, from people. Debbie says to you, um, I would like to thank you, first of all, for taking uh, the four corners of hell and trying to clear up many of the misconceptions. I have suffered with depression and PTSD for several years, and I will say that things have gotten better than they were 20 years ago, but the need to educate people is still huge. I was told that there's no way I could have PTSD because I'm not a cop or a soldier. There are so many things that people need to uh, be married more aware. Oh, it's probably just a misspelling. They need to be married more aware of no one chooses to be depressed. And then unfortunately it doesn't bring up the rest of the message, but I get the yeah, point there. I think, I think I actually seen a post on the, on the we are warriors page that I thought that I often refer to when I talk to people and it's like, I didn't choose alcoholism. When you asked me what I wanted to do when I was a kid, I didn't go, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be uh, a cowboy. I wanted to be a, for a while, I wanted to be a farmer like my dad, you know, I didn't want to be an addict or a sub somebody who struggled with substance use disorders and stuff like that. It's, we don't choose this guys, no. it, you know? So um yeah it's it, it, that's just it it's like, that's yeah. a perfect way to end it there brad like yeah i agree we didn't choose this life but and i know there's millions of people out there that didn't choose to have their addiction or ptsd or um, the struggles that they're having right now with mental health but um there still needs to be things in place and and you can still get help and you can still be happy you know, it doesn't have to define you, put it that way. Yeah, um, I always I always like to tell people, you know, like there's always someone for you, right? Mm. Um, there's there's always that other someone who your your person that your other half that can help you out, your that someone that's there to listen, that someone that's there to care. And if you don't have that someone, you can reach out to me and I'll try and be that someone for you. You know, I can't obviously dedicate my whole life to it, but I don't want anyone to feel like they don't have someone. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for joining us, Brad. Uh, you're amazing. I would love to have you back on again. I honestly think this is amazing. 
Man, anytime. I, I absolutely love the whole We Are Warriors platform, the whole idea behind it. I love writing for the magazine. Uh, I love you and Sheena and what you're doing. And man, thanks for having me, you guys. It's been fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for watching. Please, if you haven't subscribed, uh, you can you can find the link all over the We Are Warriors page. Brad has his own little um, section in the magazine, and we love having Brad. He brings a lot of important messages for us in the magazine. So please subscribe to our magazine, uh, join our community, go follow Brad, and I'm going to make sure that I put Brad's uh, YouTube uh, information on the page as well. So thank you, Brad. Thank you, everybody else. Have a great night.